0: get their attention they'll get one of those bibles to you if you need it please don't be shy about taking one and keeping that as our gift to you bring it back each lord's day as we look at god's word together and i ran into our missionary to japan brian leonard's in the hallway so didn't know brian and amy were going to be here with their family but delighted to have you guys here brian tells me you're leaving in nine days did you say Nine days for Japan, so we may not see them again before they leave, so we'll be praying Godspeed upon you all and your ministry, and if you see Brian and Amy during our break time, make sure you let them know that as well. Andy Warhol was right when he replied to a compliment about one of his paintings, saying, in a million years, what will it matter? In a thousand years, what will it matter? In a hundred in 50. One of the great tragedies that I've observed in ministry is that many professing Christians just muddle through life. That's why over the years I've talked about how many of us are just living as if we're biding our time. We've come to Christ and so we're saved and we believe that the Bible teaches that we will be received into heaven if we're born again now. That's all true. And so we're just playing off the string until our time is up and we're in heaven. Since we see life now as just the gap between having been saved in the past to in the future enjoying eternity with God, it raises the question, why doesn't God just go ahead and take me? Just beam me up, Jesus. In that mindset, life on earth for a Christian is one big Bill naps. Some of you remember Bill Knapps. It was known for its appeal to older people, even though we went there often when our girls were little. But because there were so many seniors who frequented Bill Knapps, it was nicknamed God's waiting room. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with looking forward to heaven and being with the Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself looked forward to heaven as well. When he was under house arrest for preaching the gospel and he was awaiting a verdict Regarding his fate, it was not clear whether or not he was going to be executed. And during that wait, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 1. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now notice what he says. I desire to go to heaven, and that would be better for me personally. But then he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. That is, Paul says, I know I have ministry to perform that will be of help to others. That will produce what he called fruitful labor. And so it's, as he says, more necessary that I remain on earth. When I was a kid, there was a beer commercial that said you only go around once. So go for the gusto. But a biblical worldview says you only go around once. So make it count for eternity. You see, friends, we're not merely filling time in the gap between now and eternity. We are part of God's church that He has instituted to carry out His mission on earth. And one author has summarized that mission very carefully, saying this, the primary mission of the church, and therefore of the churches, now notice church is capitalized, of the church, the body of Christ worldwide, and therefore of the churches, the local bodies then that comprise it, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, gather believers into these local visible churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. And we are each part of that mission so that we're each to play a vital role in its fulfillment and we're to order our lives around it. This message is about the second of those things, ordering our lives around the mission that God has given us. Psalm 90 provides wisdom for living lives of meaning and purpose. It's a prayer, the purpose of which is expressed in the very last verse of Psalm 90 verse 17 it says may the favor of the lord our god rest on us establish the work of our hands for us yes establish the work of our hands establish cause it to stand make it firm make it last make it count lord that's what i ask you to do then in this prayer but how does that become a reality Psalm number 90 has a kind of reverse cause and effect logic. If we want the last verse to be achieved, that our work on earth be established, that it lasts, that it's it's firm, then we must heed the words of the key verse in the middle of the psalm, verse 12. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But if we're going to number our days and thereby have a heart of wisdom, we're going to need to do what the preceding verses say. In fact, in Hebrew, in which this was originally written, the word so is at the beginning of verse 12. So, teach us to number our days. That is based on what was said in the previous verses, this is what we need to do. Number our days. Today, from Psalm number 90, we're going to see what God tells us to do in order for our lives to matter for eternity. Let's bow and ask God to help us then. Father, thank you for the great privilege of being yours, being among your people, being gathered in your presence in this sacred hour with your congregation, the congregation of the saints, brothers and sisters in your family, God's household. Lord, it's a privilege I do not deserve, we do not deserve. Thank you for it thank you for implanting in us then a desire to be a part of it, to be among your people in your presence, to sing praise to you, to give back to you, to read your word, but then to consider what your word says for our lives in this coming week and months and years. Help us to do that so that we can better glorify you in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Psalm number 90 is unique for at least two reasons. One is, it begins the fourth of five books that comprise the overall book of Psalms. Throughout this series on the book of Psalms, I've shown you this slide, and we are now in, the highlight should be on book four. I thought I had highlighted book four, but that should be in both. And so Psalm 90, we are starting book four. So Psalm 90 is unique for that reason. It's starting this new book. These individual books that were brought together into one book, are, as I've told you in the previous weeks, they're like movements in a musical cantata, with each having a theme that contributes to the overall piece, bringing it to a culmination at the end, in the case of Psalms, culminating in praise to God in that fifth and final movement. So Psalm 90 is unique because it begins a new book, a new movement in the overall story. But please note, just before verse 1 in your Bible. The superscription. It says, it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this psalm is unique also because although there are 150 psalms, exactly one was written by Moses, and this is it. And Moses is a major factor of this movement, this fourth movement in the cantata from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. He wrote this first one, and he's referenced three times in the final one. Psalm 106. And he appears three more times in between. And outside of this book, book number four, Moses is mentioned only one time in the entire book of Psalms, in Psalm 77. Now most of us remember Moses, the man that God used to tell Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, to release God's people from slavery after 400 years of bondage. Here in Psalm 90, Moses is at the end of his life, having led his people out of Egypt. Having wandered in the desert for 40 years, he's now come to the banks of the promised land. And so this aged saint reflects and prays, not for himself, but for the next generation. Now each week we have an outline for you that you receive on the way in. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. Where I say, first of all, God puts us in our place. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now I say God puts us in our place. Because although this prayer is about how we live our lives and number our days, it starts as it must with God. And that's because God sets the context for all aspects of our lives. If we're going to live lives that count, then we have to see our lives in their relation to God. Thinking about God sets the context for thinking properly about our own lives. So the prayer begins with God. And it's a reminder that our prayers should begin with God and our thoughts should regularly be centered on God. The Bible itself Begins with God. In the beginning, God created. And as I reminded you in last week's message, this should be the regular habit of our prayers, to acknowledge Him as the one who is priority, as was outlined in Jesus' model prayer for His followers. We speak first to God about Him, about Your name, about Your kingdom, about Your will. So Moses says in verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. The Israelites were certainly dependent on God for their dwelling place when they wandered in that desert for for 40 years. But Moses says that's not only true during those two generations, but at all times. This is why the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because fearing the Lord, that is, being in awe of Him and demonstrating reverence toward God, reminds us of what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. He's the maker. We are the ones who were made, and we're dependent upon Him. That's why Moses references creation in verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When they sojourned in the wilderness, they passed many mountains, and they were no doubt in awe of their grandeur. But they needed to be reminded of someone more majestic than the mountains, namely the one who actually made those mountains. Remember that God had met with Moses on a mountain, and there was thundering and there was lightning, and the people were in awe, not of the mountain, but of the presence of the God who made it and who made them. When we look at God's creation, it should not be that we look at it just for what the particular object is, but rather the one who is behind it. As we look at the creation, we should be reminded of the Creator. I remember one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life was when I was 18 and on my class trip for my Christian high school, we went to Florida and I had never been to the ocean. And I remember standing on the beach and looking at the ocean. And the power of the ocean. And thinking about the God who made it. God used that. God used some discussions, spiritual discussions, believe it or not, on our class trip. That we had at that time. To a few months later bring me to salvation. The whole Bible is about, I say in the class that we teach, the one that we urge, one of the two that we urge everybody to take, how to get the most out of your Bible, I say in there that the Bible is about one line, people in situations before God. And I say that because nearly half of the Bible is narrative. That is, it's recounting, it's narrating stories of what happened to other people. And so because of that, you may think those stories are not relevant to you since they happened to other people. But all of those are about people in situations before God. And of those three things, people, situations, and God, two of them haven't changed. People are the same and God is the same. And so we can learn from their experiences about ourselves and about God. The end of verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. God has always been, always will be. We will always be, but we've not always been. That is, we will exist somewhere for eternity, heaven or hell, but we had a beginning. God had neither beginning nor end. God has always existed, and how that can be true is beyond our ability to fathom. God is the only being who has never had a beginning. And so critics of the Bible and Christianity will ask, where did your God come from? And we can only answer that He's the Creator and always has been. And the Bible starts that way, in the beginning, God. But that shouldn't embarrass us, because the truth is everyone has to have a starting point beyond which they cannot go in their thinking. And so where did you come from? From my parents. Where did they come from, their parents? You go back far enough, you've got some original parents, and you're going to have to say, where did they come from? And you're finally going to hit up against something that you simply cannot explain. When I was in college, the University of Michigan in this case, and in a biology class, my biology textbook, which I've kept just to prove to any of you who think this is not actually in there, I still have it. And in the opening pages of my biology textbook, it talked about uh, a primordial, what it called a primordial soup of gases that existed eventually compressed and exploded, and eventually became what you see. And I remember reading that in class, having to regurgitate it back on tests to get my grade, but thinking all the while this could have started, once upon a time there were gases. I mean, it's that much of a fairy tale, because everyone must start somewhere. Contrary to Carl Sagan, who said for years on the public airwaves, supported in part by taxpayer dollars, Quote, the universe is all that is, ever was, or ever will be. Friends, God is the only one who always has been and ever will be. So all of life is to be referenced in terms of God. All of our relationships are to be referenced in terms of God. In every relationship, every relationship, there are at least three persons. Three. And God is always the most important. We often forget that, don't we? So we're in conflict, and we only think of that person with whom I'm in conflict, and we forget that God is in this relationship, and He's the most important. God is at the center of our trials, the Bible teaches. The difficulties, adverse circumstances we go through life, and that's why the Apostle could, Paul could say, in light of that, in light of God, in light of eternity, our trials are light and momentary. If you view it that way, when we're in the midst of going through life we, and see it with God at the center, we understand that God is the power, the strength through which we forge ahead. The one apart from whom we can do nothing. When God is the center of our lives and in all aspects of our lives, we recognize that it's about His glory and not about us. So referencing God puts us in our place. But this God, I say in the outline, assigns our penalty. If we're going to use our days in a way to make them count, then we need to recognize that we don't have many of those days. And the reason we don't have many, the Bible says, is because of sin. Remember, death happens because we're sinners. Decay, which is the process of death, happens because we live in a sin-cursed world. It was God who assigned that penalty for sin saying to our first parents Adam and Eve you will certainly die if you disobey what I have given you and then later the Bible says the wages of sin is death and so because of that our lives will end in death I say in your outline verse 3 you turn people back to dust saying return to dust you mortals Moses had become somewhat of an expert on death during that 40 years in the wilderness because he saw so many people die. You see, when Moses led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, the Bible tells us how many people were part of that journey. Book of Numbers, so named. By the way, anybody gotten to the book of Numbers in your Bible? You don't have to raise your hand. Book of Numbers in your Bible reading for 2024. But when you do, you'll find it's so named because it's got, a bunch, it's got a lot of numbers in it. And the very first chapter of the book of Numbers says this. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. Numbers 145 informs us that this 603,550 603,500 adult men, they were the ones who could serve in the army, left Egypt with Moses. Now, if these men had wives, as they undoubtedly did, that would mean approximately 1.2 million adults participating in the Exodus. Further, the Bible tells us that only two of that 1.2 million lived to enter the promised land at the end of 40 years. So consider the math. 1.2 million people Dying in 40 years is 30,000 a year. Which comes out to 83 a day. Which comes out to about 3 to 4 every hour. Moses, by the nature of the circumstances, could not escape the inevitability of death. Now we try to suppress the reality of death. We try not to think about it. We attempt to suppress the process of death with cosmetics we attempt to suppress the product of death by often placing our cemeteries miles away cemeteries miles away from where we live so we don't have to think about it see back in the day the cemetery was right next to the church and people were regularly reminded that we have few days moses not only understood that our lives will end in death but he also understood as i say that our lives will end relatively soon Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by or like a watch in the night. And verse 5 says, you sweep people away in the sleep of death. So here Moses offers three metaphors to illustrate the brevity of life. First, he says that from God's perspective, a thousand years is like a single day, a day that has just gone by. Now when we consider the length of our lives in the light of that truth, it shows how extremely brief is our time on earth. Consider that if one lives an extraordinarily long life, he might reach a hundred years, or one-tenth of a thousand. One-tenth of one day is two and a half hours. Moses is saying that from God's perspective, our lives are like two and a half hours. that's kind of sobering well let me cheer you up it actually gets worse than that (laughs) he goes on to compare our lives to a watch in the night now in their culture watchmen worked in shifts to guard the city's gates from attack and the typical watchman's shift was three hours but remember our lives are no more than one-tenth of that about 18 minutes you've heard it said that everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame Moses says, in effect, everybody gets their 15 minutes of life. Verse 10 says, Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. So a 70-year life is like 15 minutes. So every minute is like four and a half years. So if you're 25... You've used about five minutes, you've got about 10 to go. If you're 35, you've used seven and a half, you've got seven and a half to go, you're halfway there. 45, you've used almost 10 of your 15 minutes, so we need to ask what am I going to do with the last five? If you're 55, you've used 12. 65, you're under the two minute warning. (laughs) And at past 70, you're in overtime. (laughs) So at almost 62, I've probably lived well over two-thirds of my life already. Less than one-third left. But it's still worse. Moses' third metaphor for the brevity of human life puts in mind the momentary nature of our existence. He says in verse 5, You sweep people away in the sleep of death. That word translated sleep is sometimes translated wash and it pictures a tide washing on shore. I mentioned that I had that experience of being at the ocean. Most of us, many of us have had the opportunity to stand on the ocean shore and you watch the tide ebb and flow. And at one moment on the shore, there's sand and seaweed and pebbles and seashells. And after the wash of the tide, just the wash of the tide, new sand, new seaweed, new pebbles, new seashells. And so it is with each generation which from an eternal perspective is here one moment and gone the next. Our lives are going to end in death and relatively soon, friends. We, we say things like, I've worked my entire life. My whole life. Or things like, I've never won anything in my whole life. As if your entire life and your whole life is this really long period of time. It's actually quite brief. And that should be instructive for us. Our lives will end in death relatively soon and they will end because of sin. Verse 7. We're consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Now I mentioned... Earlier that none of the Israelites who left Egypt made it to the promised land alive. The reason the Bible gives for this is that they had sinned against God's directive. Early in their sojourn in the desert, the Israelites had opportunity to take the land that God had promised. But because they did not trust that God would give them victory over the land's inhabitants, they refused to go in. You all remember that? So they sent a spy expedition, 12 people. Go check it out, see if now's the right time to do what God... (laughs) has told us to do. That's sin in itself, right? So they send an expedition to see Lord, we'll see if this is the right time. They come back. Ten of them say, no way. Only two of them say, yeah, we can do this. Because they didn't trust that God would give them that victory over the inhabitants, they refused to go in. And as a result, God burned with anger at their sin, and he consigned them to wander in the desert. They wandered for 40 years. Do you know why it was 40 years? The book of Numbers tells us. You're going to wander one year for every day, the 40 days that they sent the spies in, delaying, disobeying God. And this is what the Lord said. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and He solemnly swore, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers. The exception is Caleb and Joshua, the two that said we should obey the Lord. As a result of their sin, the Israelites were reduced to simply killing time. Each day they get up, get food, eat, put up their tent, get up, take it down. In effect, sin caused them to be consigned to the rat race of life. You say, wow, what a miserable existence. Just going through the motions day after day. Listen, if if you're failing to live your life in obedience to and pursuit of God's objectives, then we are just killing time on the treadmill of the rat race. Today we are bombarded with philosophies that amount to nothing more than killing time. Live it up. Go for the gusto. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Many a professing Christian has bought into the allure of the world and the pursuit of its fool's goal. And as a result, many a church is filled with people killing time and with pastors who one author called pastors chaplains to the rat race. Solomon wrote a book about the rat race, the book of Ecclesiastes. In it, he described his own experience of killing time. He says he he looked for meaning to life in pleasure, in work, in hobbies, and on it goes. And what was his conclusion? This is what you find throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. All is meaningless. You have this phrase throughout, under the sun. All that under the sun offers without an above the sun perspective that God alone gives, then all is meaningless. Shakespeare's Macbeth understood this dilemma. Saying, all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It, Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The rat race will not satisfy. So, those great theologians, the strolling bones, I mean, the rolling stones, said, I can't get no satisfaction. And those other great theologians, the eagles, you're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny how the feeling goes away? And what they're saying is that there's always something else thrown at you, telling you what you need to be satisfied, but when you get it, it's not enough, so you need something else, and on it goes. That's why Augustine was correct to say, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So what's the solution to the dilemma of a brief life that ultimately signifies nothing? God puts us in our place, He assigns the penalty, we live it in the fallen world that is that penalty. But God also blesses our lives. Having considered our lives in the context of God and seeing how sin causes us to live for what's fleeting and unsatisfying, then the prescription is to repent and ask the Lord to grant joy to our lives that would otherwise be miserable. So verse 13. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. And God grants this request to those who see him and themselves in proper relation. One of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in our lives is joy. Remember, that's one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. One of the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, an abiding sense of delight that God is at work, come what may. And this, come what may, come whatever the circumstances, James 1, 2, my brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever. You fall into trials of various kinds. When Paul was under house arrest in Rome and he wrote the letter to the church at Philippi and you come to the last chapter of that short book, chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. When he says that, he's chained to a Roman guard. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says, in that circumstance. So God puts us in our place, and He assigns the penalty, but He's the one who blesses our lives despite what's going on. And lastly, God grants our reward. Verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And this is the heart of this prayer in Psalm number 90. The word translated wisdom, the Hebrew word hokmah means skillful living that achieves its purpose. Skillful living that achieves its purpose. It's used of those who could take flax and turn it into linen, which in turn was used to make the garments for the priests in the temple and tabernacle. It was also used of those who cut trees for use by the carpenters of the tabernacle. And so one displaying wisdom is one who uses his skill to achieve the purpose for which it was given. You've been given skill. You've been given gifts. You've been given abilities. The question is, for what do we use them? So what is our purpose? The Bible famously says, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And although that is true, that God's purpose in all places, and all times, is that He received glory, we have to ask precisely how does He receive glory in our day? What has God told us that we're to be about in order for Him to receive maximum glory? Well, we call this the Great Commission, the last words that Jesus gave before He ascended back to the Father. Familiar to most of you, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission because it's great in its scope and in its promises, but it is great in that it constitutes the marching orders for believers. We are to be about the business of introducing folks to Christ, initiating them into the church, teaching them, partnering together in that church to teach them to grow in grace so that they can give themselves to that same great cause. So if we are to live wisely, use our few days for the purpose given, it means, friends, we align our priorities in the use of our time, talent, and treasure to maximize their utility in God's work. We gain a heart of wisdom when we number our days. That is, we recognize that in light of life's, uh, in, in the light of death's certainty and life's brevity, we don't have time to kill. Rather, we use the abilities and gifts that God has given to accomplish His purpose, His own glory, through building His church. And if you spend your days living for God's objectives, you can then identify with the words, the famous words of the Apostle Paul. In the last chapter of the last letter that the Apostle penned before he was executed for preaching the Gospel of Christ, I have fought the fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. You will hear the words of the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. This prayer ends as we began, verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Friends, one of the grand benefits of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is that what I do today has value for eternity. And I went through that litany of, you know, if you're you're 70, you know, if you're past 70, you're in overtime and all that. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Each of us needs to ask ourselves, what am I going to do with the remaining time that God has given me? In 1904, William Borden, who was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from a Chicago high school as a millionaire. His parents gave him a trip around the world. Traveling through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe gave Borden a burden for the Lord's hurting people. Writing home, he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. When he made this decision, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves, Turning down high-paying job, high job offers after he graduated from Yale University, he entered two more words in his Bible, no retreats. Completing studies at Princeton Seminary, he sailed for China to work with Muslims, stopping first at Egypt for some preparation. While there, he was stricken with cerebral meningitis and he died within a month. A waste, you might say. Not in God's plan. In his Bible, underneath, no reserves and no retreats, he had written the words, no regrets. When you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty is you have no regrets. No matter what happens. You don't guarantee how it comes out in your life. I can't guarantee that in my life. Here's what I can guarantee for you, friends. Faithfulness is success. When you're faithful you're successful god calls us to faithfulness in the few years that he gives to us in return for what the lord jesus christ has done for us we can never repay but in light of what he has done for us we give our lives as living sacrifices to him your take-home truth is right now counts forever let's bow together Our Father, we thank You first for the Lord Jesus Christ who has made it possible for us to have a relationship with You, giving Himself for us, living as we were to have lived, dying in our place the death we deserved. Opening up the opportunity then for those of us who, because of sin, all of us, were separated from You now to be reconciled to You. You've given us your Holy Spirit to work in our lives to produce the fruit of the Spirit in all circumstances. And you're at work in our lives causing us to have a higher allegiance than what this world presents. And so we see you over all and you better than all and you prioritize then over everything. Lord, help us to implement that in our lives then, all of us. Help us to count our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom and thus bring glory to you in the days that you give. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.